in singing the, the uh, How Great Thou Art, uh, I'm getting into music and I didn't think I'd start with music, but <clears throat> I'm really uh, grieved at how we're getting away from singing the good hymns and uh, singing more of the ditty type stuff. And I'll tell you, when push comes to shove, the ditties don't do it. You know, you need the, the, the hymns that have substance and meat to them. And it's been a real a blessing for us to use a hymnal as part of our own personal worship. And uh, we were able to get a, we've gotten two, a new, brand new hymnal, but we got a hymnal from a, 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 one of the most unique Bible schools in America that I knew of. It's just a tremendous school, very conservative and an excellent school. And they put out a hymnal where the music's on top and the words are on the bottom, like they used to do them. So you can just read the hymns. And I've gone through that. And then we heard of another old hymnal that has, uh, we just got it, it has 1,500 hymns in it. And uh, it was put together in the 1800s. And it's really excellent. So as we're singing that song, I just, you know, go back and, and in the early church, in the early days, people carried two things to church, and that was their hymnal and the Bible. And I would like to see us get back to the hymnal and back to some of the songs that have some very strong meaning to them. I was hoping that there would be one or three people here tonight, and I don't think, I don't see any of them. Of course, I can't see anybody now from here. It's, uh, these lights are so bright, I didn't know I was going to get suntanned in Dallas Hotel. <laughs> but... Uh, there's uh, a young man, he may be here tomorrow, but I just thought it'd be so neat if you could see somebody that has been changed, you know, that could just stand here and share. I was doing a seminar for medical doctors. I've done a number of those up in the North Woods. And uh, at this one particular seminar, there were 200 doctors that would come for the week and their wives. And I knew that there were five doctors there that had come to freedom, personal freedom. And so I asked uh, Bill Gathard, who puts this on for doctors, I said, Bill, what about having a couple of doctors get up and share how they've come to freedom in Christ before I speak in front of all the doctors? It may give me a little bit of credibility. And he thought it was a pretty good idea. And so a couple of doctors, I prayed that the first two doctors that showed up for the conference that I knew that had come to freedom, I'd ask them. And so uh, I remember the first fellow that came, and, and I asked him if he'd be willing to share. Uh, he grew up on the mission field and uh, was an MK, and then his father was a pastor here in America, and then he became a medical doctor, and he had a, a problem, uh, a sexual problem in his life that started early on in his life, and it went through high school, and he thought he'd get rid of it in medical school, and it didn't go away, and he thought marriage would do it, and marriage didn't do it, and he was in bondage, and uh, he came to freedom, and his wife was there, and, and and he asked her if it would be all right if he shared his testimony. She said, listen, if it will help these doctors to come to freedom, I'd be more than glad for you to share. So he got up and he shared uh, his situation. There was another medical doctor sitting in the audience. I mean, there were 200 of them. But one of them that happened to know this fellow uh, very, uh, was sort of a friend. And he sat there and he said, this isn't relevant. This has no bearing on my life. Um, I was not a Christian, and I, and I sowed some wild oats when I was younger and you know, got involved in things I shouldn't have gotten involved in, but now I am committed to Christ. And so he just kind of let it go over his head. 
And about two years ago, time flies when you're having fun, or even when you're not having fun sometimes, it still flies. And this, uh, I got a telephone call, and it was a medical doctor, and he said, do you remember me? I'm Dr. So-and-so, and I said, yes, and he was crying. He said, Jim, I've had major moral failure in my life. He said, when I sat and heard those fellows give their testimony, I thought, never could be me, never could be me. I'm so committed to Christ, this couldn't happen to me. And he said, Jim, I'm devastated. Please, can you see me? And this fellow came, spent a week, came to freedom, went home, led his wife to freedom. And then this last year, I've spoken in two different places in the United States, and he happened to move from one place to another. And so during the, he's been free now for about a year and a half. And he would come and hug me and just say, Jim, I'm still free. Look at my face, look at my eyes, you know, I'm still free. But there's a young man, I would just, maybe he'll be here tomorrow, this, I hope he comes. He lives in Texas. I got a telephone call from his father. He wasn't in Texas that time, they were living in the South. And he was a Bible college student, and he ripped the door off the boys' dorm to let people that were trapped between the wood out. And so the school said, you need to take your son. In fact, we'll, put him in, we'll commit him to a mental hospital. This boy is totally out of it. We'll commit him to a mental hospital, and, and you can come down. They said, no, no, uh, we'll come down. So they called him on the phone and said, could you see our son? Something is radically wrong with him. He is just totally out of it, and they want to um, put him in a mental institution. And that boy came and spent a week with us. And that was maybe three years ago, four years ago. It's hard for me to keep track of time. And um, that young man, I was hoping he would be here, that you could see him. Uh, this, his testimony was on a video I did, and they were showing it in Russia. And he happened to be in Russia at that time, and uh, they told about this boy that you know, ripped the door off and how bad he was. And he was so bad that it would take him maybe 20 minutes to read one sentence. His mind was so gone. And um, after they finished that section of the video, this young man stood up and said, it was me. And none of the young people there could believe it. And he'd be going to Russia, I think next month will be his fourth trip to Russia to be teaching in the schools there. But his face just radiates Jesus Christ. And I just wish I had a picture of this young man before and after coming to freedom. You just would never dream that this young man who's got such a healthy, glowing countenance could ever have had or had ever been so <clears throat> bad that he, that he, uh, the trouble he was in. I want you to turn to John. Uh, if you have your Bibles, it would be good if you have them. Uh, we're going to be spending an awful lot of time in the Word. In fact, that's where we're going to spend all our time is in Scripture because uh, that's where we find out about spiritual warfare. John 10.10. 10. God gave me an opportunity to uh, do a lot of teaching a few years ago with uh, campus groups, Navigators Crusade, and going to some of the universities and, and speaking there to students, and also training some of their staff to help students in the college that have all kinds of bondages and defeat in their, in their, in their lives. And uh, when you speak to these staff people, they just kind of like look at you and say, I dare you to be interesting. You know, they, they kind of fold their arms, these college kids. And, and so when I, um, when I go to this John 10, 10, I, I start out with these college kids and I say, do you know that Satan has a wonderful plan for your life? <laughs> you know, that's one of their lingos with, with the kids and they go, oh, I think I'll take notes. Um, 
But um, my background is I've taught in some Bible colleges. And uh, as I was teaching those schools and teaching counseling, I did not believe the enemy was real. And so as I trained pastors, and I trained a lot of students from um, Texas and from Dallas and a lot of students from Fort Worth that are ministering, I told them that this is one issue they'd never have to deal with. I, I'm a, a squeaky conservative, and when I walk, I squeak. You can hear it. Uh, and so in my conservative worldview and in my mind that anybody that believed the enemy was real was into some type of extremism, some type of emotionalism, if you know what I'm saying, rather than into the Bible. Somehow I could believe in heaven, but I really, I guess, didn't believe in hell. I could really believe that Jesus was real, and God, and the Holy Spirit, and I could believe there was angels, but it was very hard for me to believe that Satan and demons were real, even though they're in the Scripture, and there's a lot of warning about them in Scripture. For me, they were not real. They were just in the Bible. And what is tragic, I just was up in Alaska uh, a few weeks ago suffering as, uh, for the Lord in that beautiful place, ministering to missionaries. And in my next prayer letter, um, there's some wonderful testimonies of freedom that came in the lives of these missionaries from that week. But as I travel in different parts of the world, it's really sad to see missionaries being defeated in the mission field because they do not believe the enemy is real. And yet he is totally wiping them out. Either their families out or them personally wiping them out because they had the same mindset that I had. So I know that tonight there's probably all different uh, worldviews here as far as you view the spirit world. And I trust that as we share with you that, that God will get the glory. I could tell you stories that would be spooky, but that would only give glory to the enemy. Uh, and I don't want to share those. I just want to share that which would give glory to Christ. But Satan does have a plan. I want to share my worldview. I believe that there are, we have an enemy. We're warned about him in scripture. I believe that for a Christian that the enemy is only spirits of influence. They're not spirits of control. It's very, very important. You and I are responsible for the choices we make. I was speaking to the Apaches, uh, the Hickory Apaches, who are direct descendants of Geronimo, who was a medicine man, not a chief. And I was speaking in their church in New Mexico. I've had opportunities to minister to many, many Indian groups uh, in um, uh, America and in Canada. And all of them have their animistic beliefs and they believe in the spirit world. I don't have to convince any American Indian that the spirit world's real. I have to convince them that Christ has more power than the enemy. And so as I was standing in that church, I said, now I want you to do, this is my second or third night there, I said, I want you to do what I'm going to tell you to do. Now I want you to be obedient to me. So they looked at me and I said, what I want you to do is I want you to turn around and I want you to slug the person sitting behind you as hard as you can. Well, some of you are smiling. They didn't smile. Apaches don't smile. <laughs> they just looked at me like, this guy has really lost it. And so I hit the pulpit because you do that to make a point, you know, and got a little, little 
umph to it, and I said, you didn't do what I told you. I'm, I want you to turn around, and I want you to hit the person sitting behind you. They just looked at me. Now, when I shared this with the Sioux Indians, they laughed and laughed, and one guy said, oh, I wish my mother-in-law was behind me. <laughs> but the Apaches didn't laugh. <clears throat> so then I said to them, I wouldn't go to a church like this. This is a terrible church. Why, everybody was thinking about being violent and hitting the people sitting behind them. Now, what did I do? Now, if someone would have turned around and slugged somebody, could they say, Logan made me do it? No. All I did was to put a thought in their mind, and they either could accept it or reject it. All I could do was influence them to behavior that would not be acceptable. But everyone in that church rejected that influence, and then I turned around and I accused them for thinking the thoughts that I put in their mind. That is how the enemy works in most all of our lives that are right here. And John 10.10 tells us that every attack of the enemy upon a believer is going to come in one of these three categories, or all three categories. The, uh, the purpose of the attack of the enemy is to get my focus off of Christ onto myself, my circumstances, my situation, people, or whatever. But he doesn't want me to look to the Lord. He wants me to look away from the Lord and more and more away and more and more away and more and more influence. And, and we get people, we had a fellow this week, in fact, we just finished with them yesterday, um, who had um, the most occultic manifestations of power in his personal life in his home and in his family of anyone that I've dealt with outside of people who were exiting Satanism. I've never met a man who was so creepy and had so much creepy power as his fellow had, as he allowed the enemy to influence his life for years and years and years and had all this unusual stuff. But John 10.10 tells us, Jesus said, this is Satan's plan, this is his goal. He says, a thief cometh but not to steal, to kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so when the enemy influences me and the enemy seeks to implant thoughts in my mind that he wants me to carry out, he has a threefold purpose in mind. The first thing is to steal. I mean, right now I'm staying in this hotel and um, if someone would break into my room, I don't think they're going to be looking for my dirty socks. But they're going to look for something of what? Value in that room. What is it that the enemy wants to steal from us that has value? I believe number one is that your life would have eternal significance. The enemy wants you so wrapped up in problems and in self and in all of this that you can't reach out to anybody. And so he robs you that when you get to heaven, nothing but leaves. There is no fruit. There is no lasting benefit from your life because the enemy had you in such bondage you couldn't reach out, whether it's emotional bondage or doing. In, uh, in our center, we get so many phone calls. Um, 
we get now roughly about 6,000 phone calls, and we don't advertise because we don't charge. The counseling is totally free. We just are trusting Christ to meet our personal needs as we meet the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting. Because we get people that come that have spent a tremendous amount of money. A, a family in one state wanted to bring their teenage daughter. I couldn't see her, so I sent her to Dr. Copley. Some of you know Dr. Copley. And this family has spent over $100,000 on their daughter with absolutely no help. Uh, Bill Gothard sent a 13-year-old girl to see me whose father taught in the Bible college. They had spent $74,000. The girl had seen 16 psychiatrists and been admitted to six psychiatric hospitals, Christian and non-Christian, in two years. And the girl only was getting worse and worse and worse. The voices just kept speaking louder and louder and louder. And so the enemy wants to steal. He wants to steal the joy. He wants to steal my peace. He wants to rob me of the fruit of the Spirit that is rightfully mine as, as a child of God. And now these phone calls that we get there are so tragic. Some of them are just, would just break your heart to hear the terrible things that are going on and the terrible problems these people are having. And you just see the enemy at work. They're just robbing these people of their birthright. You know, we have rights as a believer. We do have rights. I have right to be at peace, don't I? What did Jesus say he would give us? Peace, what? I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world give, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. How many Christians do we get that come with just irrational fears? Lots of them. Fear everything. Just uh, people are calling us. I haven't been out of my house. I can't even go to church. I can't go shopping. I can't leave my home. I am so bound in fears. We find that basically women seem to be more vulnerable to attacks emotionally. And men are more vulnerable to doing. Men are more into doing things that are not right. And women are into feeling things that aren't right. But the enemy doesn't care how we're defeated just so long as we're defeated. So he wants to rob. The second thing is he wants to kill. The enemy cannot kill you or take your life without God's permission. But we find so many of the people that come to us have seriously thought of committing suicide. They feel their situation is hopeless. Um, Mr. Ed Savoso said that a stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable something we know is contrary to the will of God. And so if I, if, if I think my situation is hopeless, then either I'm going to give myself over to it, or I'm going to take my life. Then the third area that we see, the enemy comes to destroy. And what does he destroy? He destroys relationships. He comes between husband and wife. He comes between parents and children. He comes between fathers and their sons and daughters and, and business relationships and destroy churches and missions and ministries. The enemy is a destroyer and he's out to destroy. So every attack of the enemy upon my personal life, the, 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 it will be to steal, to kill, or to destroy. That's the purpose of what's going on. We want to look at how the enemy works. I want you to turn to Luke 
No, I think it's Matthew. Um, I believe it's Matthew 16. And in Matthew 16 says something very interesting for us as, uh, as children of God. We're going to be looking at 13 through 17. But Jesus asked the disciples a question. He said, you know, I'm up here speaking, and you're in the crowd listening. And you're hearing what they're saying about who I am and the conclusions they're coming to. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the things that I've done. Who are these people saying that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and some Jeremiah or one of the prophets or something like that. And then he said, all right, but you've been with me in a closer circle. Who do you say that I am? And we have the answer there was Simon Peter in verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was a right answer, and it's wonderful. But what is exciting here is that's not where the period is. It goes on, or there's a period there, but I mean, it, it isn't the end of the statement. Jesus makes a statement here, and the statement is very, very significant. Because if he hadn't have said this, there's something we wouldn't have known, and there's something Peter wouldn't have known. And that's this. Jesus in verse 17 answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, Peter, I asked you a question. Immediately, a thought came into your mind, and you spoke that thought out, and it was a right thought. But Peter, that thought did not originate with you. God put that thought in your mind. Isn't that wonderful that God can put thoughts in our mind? God is able to minister to my mind. But in that same chapter, just down the page a little bit, from verse 21 down through 23, Jesus began to talk about the crucifixion, dying on the cross, going and, and, and going to be resurrected again. And verse 22 says, Peter took him aside and rebuked him and he said, Lord, don't let this thing come unto you. Don't do this. Don't go this direction. And then Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. For you are an offense unto me, for you savor us or think not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. So here in a chapter, Peter gets a thought, he speaks it out, and Jesus said, you know that, that God put that thought in your mind? And then later on, Peter speaks out again, and Jesus said, Peter, do you realize that the, the origin of that thought was from the enemy? And if this is the only hour that you are able to be here, and I want to thank you for coming, just walking out with this information can be of extreme emotional and mental health for you. And that is this. Not everything that pops into your mind is necessarily coming from you. If 
God told us, and we're going to see tomorrow, that we are to control our thoughts. And if you and I don't control our thoughts, and we let our thoughts control us, and those thoughts are coming from the enemy, who then is controlling my life? The enemy. Now, at this point, my counselees are going, boy, you're right on, you're right on. And he said, but how can I tell the difference? I mean, how do I know? If thoughts can come from God, and thoughts can come from Satan, and thoughts can come from me, how do I know? I mean, usually we don't get this, <laughs> I have a thought for you. And you're going, oh, I think I know where that came from, you know? <laughs> it, would be, it would be wonderful if that's what would happen, but it doesn't come that way. They just pop in there. And so you need to ask yourself, is this thought from God? And if you're not being plagued with intruding thoughts and all of that kind of thing, but boy, when you are, and you're going, no, there's no way. These thoughts are not coming from God. I mean, the way they are, the content of these thoughts, God would not put that kind of a thought in my mind. It's not from God. Then how do I know if it's my thought or an enemy thought? How do I know if I'm to take my thoughts captive? How do I know which ones to take captive? Usually, and this is rule of thumb. This doesn't mean always, but usually this is the case. Uh, today I went for a walk downtown, just praying and, and just walking around, and um, I forgot what street the hotel was on. And I wandered around and I got down to the farmer's market and then I walked back a different way and uh, here I am a saved person lost in Dallas. <laughs> but I was good and lost. I didn't know where I was. I thought, I hope I get back for the meeting. <laughs> Well, I was wandering around downtown, and um, I came to um, a Hardee's. You know, that's, that was just of the Lord. <laughs> I was thirsty. Um, but let's say there was a Hardee's and a McDonald's and some other places there. And uh, so I look and I go, there's Hardee's. Oh, but they have Coke and I like Pepsi. And I'll go to McDonald's, and, and, uh, and then I walk to McDonald's and close, but there's a Wendy down the road, and you know, on and on. And, but what happens then is that when it's my thoughts, I can switch my thoughts from you know, McDonald's to Hardee's to whatever. But when it's an enemy thought, I will just get Hardee's, Hardee's, Hardee's. I can't seem to switch it. It just keeps going. It would be like if we had, I was speaking one time, it was in Toronto, Canada, just recently, to all of the Christian Missionary Alliance missionaries of, of Canada that were home on furlough and going out. And next to us with a, was a wedding with a rock band in a room just right on the other side of the walls. And, you know, it's really interesting talking about warfare with rock band background. <laughs> really helpful. And uh, we couldn't turn it off. And see, if, if, we, if it was a radio, we could switch it off. But it was in another room. The source was not here that we could affect it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when the enemy is speaking to me, I just can't turn it off. Why? Because it's not me. It's just that my receiver is receiving these thoughts in my mind from the enemy. And we're going to tell you how to take care of those in walking in victory. But we want to lead you in how we would just work with somebody. If you were in my office and you'd come and you were hurting or you want to help someone else, then I would jot down these scripture verses and use them 
And you can turn around and do just what we're doing. We're trying to get people trained uh, to work with other people. We bring people in uh, just about every week that sit with me as prayer partners so they can go back to their areas and help other people with, with, um, with problems. Well, was there any other scripture, any other indication the enemy gives thoughts to people? Yes, David. It said that David numbered the children of Israel, and it said that Satan put those thoughts in his mind. Did David realize those thoughts were from the enemy? I don't think so. I don't think he would have done it. But the scripture said that's where those thoughts came from. In Acts 6 or 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira. And Peter said what to them? Why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart to lie against the Spirit of God? David was a believer. Ananias and Sapphira were believers. And the enemy was able to put thoughts in their mind. I would like you to turn to Luke, I think it's 22. In Luke 22, we have a chapter with a lot of enemy activity, and it's the very last day of Christ. Or the last day before the crucifixion and so on. You have the Garden of Gethsemane and all of that stuff going on. And in verse 3, it says, Then entered Satan into Judas. And so we have for the, I think the only time in the New Testament that I found where Satan himself actually entered somebody, and that was Judas, and I believe that the, what he wanted to take place was so vital and so important. They didn't want to give it to an underling. They wanted to be sure that this would be carried out and that Jesus would be killed. And so he entered Judas to carry this thing out. But we want to go down to verse 31. There's something very interesting here. We have the Lord speaking to Peter, and he said, The Lord said to Peter, or Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, um, I just had a, my prayer partner this week was a missionary from Nigeria. And he'd been a prayer partner two, year, two years ago, and uh, really wasn't, really didn't believe in spirits. But he knew his people were all involved and lived in fear of them and so on. There where he is in Nigeria. But it was very interesting after being in our office and seeing some people come to freedom. And then he went back to Nigeria and his ministry really turned around as he began to be able to help the Nigerians with their fear and uh, living in fear and in bondage to spirits. And he was uh, a prayer partner just this last week. And so I was saying this thing of sifting now, I know today they have no sift flour, but in the good old days, uh, women sifted flour. Now, the reason that women sifted flour was to get the lumps out, but in Nigeria, it's to get the bugs out also. <laughs> you know, you want that much protein in the cake. <clears throat> but I want you to go to Job chapter one. There's some very interesting statements here in the book of Job about being sifted, about the enemy attacking someone who was walking with the Lord. You know, it's interesting that Job, that I'm told by Bible scholars, was probably the first Old Testament book available. And isn't it interesting? It's a book about a man who comes under attack of Satan. Bible scholars are not totally agreed, but many of them, when I was in Bible school, they all agreed, but now they said they're not all agreed, 
that the very first New Testament book was James, which is a book about how to resist the devil. Isn't that interesting? The first books that God gave to his people had to deal with the enemy and dealing with the enemy. Now, in the book of Job, we have a, a situation taking place in heaven. We have God giving his testimony of Job. What, you know, you could get up and tell us what a wonderful Christian you are and how marvelous and how you walk with the Lord and all of that. And that, that's great. But let me tell you, the testimony that really counts is the testimony that God is, gives of you in heaven. And the testimony in the book of Job, that's given three times, twice in chapter 1 and once in chapter 2, is God's testimony of Job himself. And we have in, in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the angels of God, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Isn't it interesting? Satan could go into the very presence of God and speak to God. And he didn't rob God of anything because it wasn't fellowship but he was able to come into God's presence. It didn't, it didn't kill Satan, and it didn't do anything to God. It didn't take away anything from God. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Isn't it interesting that God brought Job up, not Satan? He brought him up, Satan. What about Job? And God said, there is none like him on the earth. He is a perfect man. The word perfect there in the Hebrew is, means undefiled or morally pure. So I've been watching this man's moral life, and this man is morally pure. The second thing he said of this man, he was an upright man, and that has to do with his business dealings. And Job was probably one of the wealthiest men in the Bible. And he said he was honest. I've looked at his business dealings, and this man is an honest man. The third thing he said, he's one that feareth God. Living in the fear of God is having a conscious awareness of God's presence. It's knowing that God sees me. It says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. If you were in a store and you saw something that you wanted and you didn't have the money for it and you wanted it really bad, you may get a thought, take it. And so as you reach over to take it, you look down and you see the shoes of the store manager. What would you do? I think your desire to take it would leave. When you became aware of the presence of an official in the store, you would depart from evil. Do you know what we need? You and I need an awareness of God's presence. We need an awareness that God is with us. Um, I am I'm learning and I'm growing and God is teaching me a lot of things. There are a number of steps we see a person must go through in order to be free. The very first step is repentance. Repentance is not necessarily tears. We've had people weep. And you would think 
They're weeping because of what happened. I remember one time dealing with someone who was in my presence weeping and uh, it cost them to leave the ministry. It cost them to have a job that did not pay very much because of this affair, adultery. And um, so as I was speaking to this person and they were weeping and I said, well, I can understand you're weeping because there's so much consequences to the sin. And this lady said, you don't understand. I'm not weeping because of the consequences. I'm weeping because I cannot continue the adulterous relationship. Tears do not necessarily signify repentance. And what is interesting, I've done a study on repentance this year. I've looked up, I read the Bible through. I tried to read the Bible through at least in six months, and then I can read wherever I want to. I mean, it's kind of like I've got to read it through. I've got to read every jot and tittle. I want to read all that God has to say, and then I can jump around and read after that. And as I, this year, my project was to make a list of every time the word repentance was listed or there was a turning around of people. Because a lot of times the word is not there, but you see the action of repentance. And so I made a list of all of that, and I learned something about repentance. In Acts it says, repentance is towards God, but faith is towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I began to look at repentance, I realized that the scripture says again and again and again, God may grant them repentance. Repentance is towards what? God. What did the prodigal son say? Father, I have sinned against God and you. Why is there not revival in America? And this is what I think. Because we don't know who God is. He's not preached. It's not taught. We get charismatics that come to our center to be set free. They have a strong concept of the Holy Spirit and the working of the Spirit of God. Uh, I'm from a Bible background, Bible church background, and my group and those that are fall into that group have a good concept of who Jesus Christ is. Some of your Lutherans and Episcopalians and, and some of the Presbyterians and those in the more liturgical type churches have a better concept of God than I do. It says in the Psalms, they that know thy name, God, will put their trust in thee. And we need to teach. If you, I know a lot of you are homeschool families here because I, I recognize your faces. I spoke to some of you a little while ago and there were 17,000 of you there and I recognize every one of you here. <laughs> But um, you know that we need to, to, to have our children understand and we need to know who God is and to understand his name and what those names mean so there would be a fear of God. And I believe when, when, when we see who God is, that he's holy and that when I sin, I'm sinning against him, not just against my wife or my family or others. I'm sinning against the holy God. There's going to be a turning in America. But until we understand that we're sinning against God, I don't see a revival coming. 
And then the, the last one, he eschewed evil, which is an interesting word. It just, he had a hatred of evil. So here is a man who was morally pure, who was honest, who lived in fear of God, literally, he was more concerned about God's reputation in his life than he was his reputation. And this man had a hatred of evil. Obviously, this man is not going to have any problem with enemy spirits, is he? I mean, how could a man like that have any problems? That's pretty good testimony, isn't it? Wrong. He's going to have some real problems with the enemy. And so when a brother or sister is struggling because they're being attacked by the enemy, please don't assume there's something radically wrong with them. There may be something radically right with them. And so, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Now here comes an accusation. Satan is what? The what? Accuser. Here comes an accusation. He said, you've made a hedge about him and about his house and all he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands. His substance is increased in the land. But you put forth your hand now and touch all that Job has and he will curse you to your face. Because Job has a temporal value problem. That's his problem. The only reason he's following God is because God is giving him all this stuff. But you touch his stuff and you'll see what he's made of. You know, that statement is true. You know, men may not always live their profession. But you see a man under stress. You see a man under pressure. And God will reveal what this man really believes about God and about the enemy. I... Um, I have some very favorite people that I want to meet in heaven right away, um, if I get there right away. And um, it's, I guess, my favorite Christians of all. And then I'll probably give you three or four or more of this tomorrow, and you'll say, Logan, you said your favorite were these people. <laughs> but it's the Goforths of China, Jonathan and Rosalind Goforth just a very godly couple, Canadian Presbyterian missionaries from Canada to China in the 1800s. And as they were there in China, there was a, uh, they were just in language school, they were out passing out Chinese uh, literature. There was a terrible fire and they rushed to the fire, they were out on the streets passing tracks, and they realized it was their house that was burning. And everything they brought to China was going up in flames. And Rosalind Goforth began to wring her hands, just a young honeymooner practically. And her husband reached over and said, now, now, Rose, it's only things. If you went home tonight and your house was on fire, could you say, well, it's just things? I knew I had a good book. I think that's chapter one or chapter two. And God did something wonderful for me. He allowed me to meet Mary Goforth, the very first child of the Goforths that lived. 
And Mary came to my church, I was pastoring at that time, Mary came to my church and showed slides of her father. I don't know if you're aware of it, but Jonathan Goforth brought the last revival to China before the communists took over. And Chiang Kai-shek and most of all his army and all his generals were led to Christ by this Presbyterian missionary who was nearly blind, had, uh, was led to the pulpit, and he would stand there and preach, and you would see there would be thousands of soldiers that would come forward to receive Christ. And he baptized them all. He was very fortunate. He was Presbyterian because it wasn't. <laughs> the old fellow would have had a hard time with the Baptist route. <clears throat> and so when I shared uh, that we were so privileged to see these slides that were over 100 years old and to see the life of this man and to have their daughter who was in her 60s at that time share and I asked Mary, I said, Mary, your mom and dad have touched my life. Their books are wonderful. Uh, all the books on the go forth are just wonderful. And if you can grab any of them, get them and read them, it will thrill your heart. And Mary said, when she got up, she said, Mr. Logan, do you realize that you said about my mother losing everything as a brand new missionary and as a young bride, do you realize that my mother lost everything except the clothes on her back five different times? And that woman has the glow of God in her account. Just look in the book. Look at the, the pictures of Jonathan and Rosalind Goforth if you want to see a picture of dedicated, godly Christians. Their face just radi radiates Christ. They're not bitter Christians. They're better Christians. And they had a lot of losses and a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. And so it's, um, um, what's going to happen to Job here? You know, is he, how is he going to respond to losses? And the interesting thing here is in verse 10, I want you to grab a hold of this. It's so vital, and that is a hedge. Satan could not touch Job. Why? He said, how can I touch him? God, have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and all that he has? How can I get to him? There's a protection around him. And around his house and around his family, there's no way that I can bring destructive things in his life because he has your protection. When I was uh, working with the Sioux Indians, and I've uh, learned a lot working with the Sioux, and I've been a couple of times to the reservation there working with, with these Indians, I asked the fellows this. I said, when uh, the Sioux would attack a, attack a wagon train or attack the uh, uh, people going across America to across Nebraska and through there going to uh, California and, and the settlers, when, when they attacked the wagon train, I, said, I used to like to watch a lot of movies when I was a teenager and, and I love the westerns. You see these Indians, you know, riding around, shooting these arrows like crazy. Ever, you know that the arrows are flying? And I said, is that how you guys did that? And they said, Logan, have you ever made an arrow by hand? <laughs> they said, when a Sioux Indian left go of an arrow, they expected an ouch. <laughs> and then I said, fellas, I know they built forts across the west, and they were about a day's journey so that the uh, people could get their wagon trains in at night. I said, if a fort was under attack by the Sioux Indians, what side of the walls would you want to be on? And every Indian said, inside. What side of the walls are you living on tonight? Are you inside God's protection? 
Does the enemy have to get permission? Or are you outside? And he doesn't need permission to bring destructive attacks upon your life. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, a godly man, and most of you probably have heard him, Warren Wiersbe said this, when the flaming missiles of Satan are allowed to penetrate God's hedge of protection, they're no longer the destructive missiles in the hand of Satan, but they become the refining fire of God. Isn't that beautiful? And you look here from 13 on, all what the enemy did in Job's life. There were armies that were raised up. There was a tornado that was caused by the demonic world. There was fire from heaven, and that could be translated lightning. Maybe it was fire, maybe lightning. But we do know the enemy says, the scripture says, the enemy did all of this. And what was Job's response to this? Job arose. He rent his mantle. He shaved his head. He fell down on the ground and said, that's what I get for being a Christian. That's what I get for being a believer. What did he do? He fell down and what? Worshipped. Why? Because he knew what side of the hedge he was living on. He knew God was sovereign and that God allowed this in his life and he received it as of God and he worshipped God. I want just one other thing I want to share from this. And that is Satan said, if you touch his stuff, he'll curse you to his face. Did Job curse God to his face? No. Who told Job to curse God? His wife. She became a mouthpiece for Satan. You and I every day ought to pray, Lord, don't let me be a tool in Satan's hand in someone else's life. I have been hurt more by people than I ever have by any spirits directly. Not your life too? More by people that have said things that should not have been said, done things that should never have been done, and they were being influenced. They were a tool in the hand of the enemy. Then Job's friends came. Now we leave chapter 1 and Job's focus is where? On God. What do we say? What was, what's the purpose of the enemy to attack me? Hebrews 12.1 says, let us look unto what? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Where was Job's focus? On chapter 1, on God. But he had friends that came. And his friends came and they said, we know they're sending you like. I mean, you just don't have problems like this. You're just not as good as what you think you are. And you're not as good as what we think you are. And on and on and on. And after 41 chapters of his friends telling him he's a mess, Job, you come to verse 6 in chapter 42. And Job said, I whore myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And you know what happened? Nothing. Still was going on. And then it comes in verse 10, and it's so beautiful. It said, The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he got his eyes off himself and prayed for his friends. Got his focus back. And the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, I want to go back. That was all just kind of an introduction to Luke 2 there. I mean, Luke 22. Verse 31, about Simon. 
And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, let me ask you this. What side of the hedge was Peter living on? Inside or outside? How many of you uh, would say Peter was living on the outside? Raise your hand. I can't see anyway, so you can raise your hand. How many of you would say that Peter was on inside of the hedge? You're right. How do we know that? Because Satan had to ask what? Permission. Was Peter perfect? Far from it. But he was committed to what he knew, and he was right in the middle of God's will and purpose for his life. And verse 32 says, But I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. And so he said, Peter, I told Satan, have at him. You can go after him. And he said, Peter, you're not going to do so well, but when you turn around, strengthen the brethren. So we have Peter coming under attack of the enemy here. Then you go to verse 53 when they're coming to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, when I was daily with you in the temple, why is it you didn't stretch forth hands? I was just there today. Why are you coming out at night? In fact, it was a common thief. Remember he was talking to the, to the religious um, rulers here that brought this rabble out. And so he said to the religious rulers, this is your power. This is what you waited for. You wanted to get me. You want to crucify me. And then he made another statement that's really unique. And the powers of darkness. There were two groups that wanted Jesus Christ dead. One was the religious world. The other was the demonic world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, If the demonic spirits would have known what was going to happen to them, when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ or had their part in it, they never would have done it. And I want you to go to Colossians because Colossians is a Colossians chapter two is probably the most outstanding uh, verses about the work of Christ on the cross. There are three things that took place, the scripture says, when Jesus died on the cross. Verse 13, it says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him and having forgiven you all sins. How many of your sins were yet future when Jesus died for you? All of them. When you received Christ as Savior, what kind of forgiveness did you get? Eternal forgiveness. The second thing, verse 14 he blotted out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, kneeling it to the cross. It's still part of the same sentence, although it's a different verse. And so all of the ordinances, uh, you know that if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, you are under the Ten Commandments. And that's God's standard for you to go to heaven. Do you know that? <coughs> The scripture says Christ was the end of the commandments for us because we couldn't keep them. You know what the commandments do? They just bring a knowledge of sin. 
I was uh, doing a homeschool convention at Disneyland. I love doing that. It was a Chia, and they have about 4,000 there, and I was teaching worker out of California at Disneyland. And they had a group for the teenagers, and it was a group from uh, Summit Ministries from Colorado. And what they did is they had these kids go out, and they, had, they taught them how to witness. They had to go to the, we were at the Disneyland Hotel, which is a group, a group of buildings and a big lake in the middle. I don't know if you've ever been out there, but it's really beautiful. And they had to go out and witness. Well, how many people staying at the Disneyland Hotel want some teenager talking to them about Jesus? But these kids that go out, they went out two by two, and they said, please, could we talk to you? Because if we don't talk to you, <laughs> you know, we've got to talk to two people. We want to do this religious survey. And I said, okay, what's the survey? And they said, um, how many of the Ten Commandments can you name? And they go, let's see, the ox falls in the ditch, and you can pull it out, and, um, you know, they're going, do, do good to your brother, and, and little kids, the kids are writing down whatever they say. And then they say, how many of these commandments can you break and still go to heaven? Let's see, I've broken four. Uh, six? <laughs> and then they show them, if you break one, you're guilty of what? Of them all. And how Christ came and died for them and fulfill well them for them if they will trust him. Isn't that a beautiful witnessing tool? What a wonderful witnessing tool, using the commandments to bring a knowledge of sin and how Christ was the one who, who took care of the sin. And so that was done away with. But verse 15 has to do with the demonic world. And this is a golden verse. He said, having spoiled principalities and powers, this is as he's dying on the cross, he made a show of them openly Triumph, triumphing over them in it or in the cross. There are three things that the death of Jesus did to the spirit world. The first thing he did, it says he spoiled principalities and powers. When a police officer arrests somebody or making an arrest, they have them put their hand up to the car and they search them for what? A weapon. And they disarm them. And that's the word spoil. Jesus took away Satan's weapon. The only weapon the enemy can use against you and I who have trusted Christ, the only weapon he has, is a lie. He's a liar. And he uses lies. The second thing is he made a show of him openly. And this goes back to Bible days when, when they would conquer in battle. So they would take away the weapons of the enemy then they would tie their hands behind their back, often to the neck of the person behind them, and they would parade the defeated army back to the cities and back to the towns where the people lived in fear of them. said, you don't need to fear them anymore. Why? Look, they're bound. They've been defeated. Your allegiance is to the one on the horse. Your allegiance is to the one leading the parade. Now, just one more thing I want to give you, and we are going to break in a minute here. And that's this. If this is true, if Satan was truly defeated and his host was defeated at the cross, I walked in downtown Dallas today, but downtown around here, and when I finally found a police lady, or she looked like a police lady, and I said, I'm lost but I think I know the name of the hotel. I pulled out my card and it's one of those plastic ones. And it just named some plastic company on there. And I thought, I think I knew it's grand something or other. And uh, she said, well, it's down here, it's down here. And she said, I would advise you 
not to walk these streets at this time of night, not in this neighborhood. So if Satan's defeated, I saw people sitting around drunk. I saw fellows saying very crude and wicked things to some of the girls waiting for the bus, having to put up with just some very, very terrible kinds of, you know, language from some of the guys walking by looking at them, they're waiting to ride home on the bus. It doesn't look like he's defeated, does it? When we look out there and he's saying, doesn't look defeated in Dallas. Looks like the enemy's having just a heyday here. What's going on? And I want you to look, and we're just going to jump in the middle of a warfare prayer of Colossians chapter 1. There are only three warfare prayers in the Bible. Two in Ephesians and one in Colossians. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump in the middle of this prayer, verse 12 and 13. Giving thanks unto the Father, which had made us meek to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You and I are saints in light. In fact, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a saint and I'm in more light than you are. <laughs> the second thing he says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. What's the problem today? Beloved, you and I in Christ have been delivered from the power of darkness, but we have not been delivered from the presence of darkness. The whole world lies where? In the wicked one, and he's the prince of the power of the air. After the break, I want to share with you the very first commitment that a person must make if they're ever going to come to freedom in their own personal life. I have some leftover prayer letters. You like warmed over prayer letters? There's some leftover prayer letters up here that I brought with me and some cards if you want a card of our center. If you want our prayer letter, then I will not take your name and address now because our prayer letter list is so high that it costs my wife and I over $1,000 every time we mail it out. There's so many people getting it. But if you want it and you benefit from the testimonies, we've got some wonderful testimonies in the next prayer letter. If you want it, then I want you to write the office or call the office. Then I know that you'll read it and that you may pray, you may benefit from the testimonies of missionaries and pastors and regular people who have come to lasting freedom in Jesus Christ as they share their story with you.